0: What sort of behaviour do we expect from a king? That's been a question on the lips of some in the last week after Prince Harry was uh, allegedly, or or alleged that, that a few years ago he had been knocked to the floor by his brother, And of course what makes that headline news is that his brother William is next in line to the throne. Uh, The moment our current king dies, William will be king. And now fast forward in your mind's eye to the end of William's reign, when most of us will no longer be around. Imagine a book is written about him, uh, an authorised biography written and published with the approval of the royal family. Will that biography mention this alleged assault? Will it mention Harry's other accusations? Uh, Will it mention anything that that William ever did uh, that that was a bit suspect? Uh, Of course not. Why would it? Even if uh, the accusations, the stories were completely true. Because what purpose would it serve? Uh, The royal family, naturally enough, will want to present King William V as he will be in the best light. Uh, They will want to celebrate whatever legacy he leaves. Uh, It it would do them no, no advantage to present him warts and all. How different the Bible is with the characters it describes... As we get back into 2 Samuel tonight, we're jumping into the middle of a book where the key human character has just committed adultery and then he's covered it up with murder. In the last chapter that that we looked at, uh, God graciously sent the prophet Nathan to show David his sin, and by God's grace, David repented and found forgiveness. And yet, even though he's been forgiven, David's sin will cast a long shadow over the rest of this book. Nathan has just told David in chapter 12 that the sword will never depart from your house. Uh, that is his, his family line. And uh, We see the first fulfilment of this in the very next chapter, chapter 13, which we'll come to next week, God willing, when one of David's sons is murdered by his brother. And the point is that that a lot of this is pretty murky stuff. It's not the sort of thing you would include if you wanted to paint a glorious picture of a human king. And yet that is what unbelieving scholars try and claim that much of the Bible is. Up until 30 years ago, uh, some scholars were denying that David ever even existed. They said that David was just a myth invented centuries later when Israel wanted a good story about how their nation came into existence. But then in 1993 an inscription was found with the words House of David on it. A house not as, as in a house where someone lives but house in Royal Family of David. Uh, The author of the Oxford University Press Introduction to Biblical Archaeology, not a believer as far as I know, he says the finding of this inscription brought an end to the debate and settled the question of whether David was an actual historical person. Of course, for, for, for Christians, we don't need evidence outside the Bible to, to settle the, the debate. Uh, for Christians, if the Bible says it, that settles it. Uh, but even in, in the, the non-Christian world, after that discovery, there, there's a general acceptance that David is a historical character. Although that didn't stop Richard Dawkins as recently as 2019 making the false claim that David, if he existed at all, made no impact on archaeology or written history outside the Bible. But... Even for those who must now grudgingly accept that David was a real person, they will say, yes, yes, he existed, but what the Bible says about him is still largely made up. It's still largely this made up story to give Israel a great giant killing king at the beginning of their history. But one major problem with that theory, other than the fact that it's false... Another major problem is that if you want a foundation myth for your nation you wouldn't write the sort of stories that the Bible tells us about Abraham, Jacob or David. You wouldn't have your nation's greatest ever king committing murder and adultery. You wouldn't have him betrayed and driven out of the capital city by his own son. You wouldn't have his wife despise him. Instead you would have David killing giants all over the place. You wouldn't have a David who grows older and frailer and is nearly killed by another giant. Did you know that, boys and girls? David was nearly killed by another giant called Ishbi Benob. Uh, And David had to be rescued by one of his own men or Ishbi Benob would have killed him. If someone had been making this up, you wouldn't have David's men sitting him down afterwards and telling him, David, you're not able to lead us into battle anymore. You're not fit for it. For your own safety, David, you need to stay home the next time we go into battle. What sort of behaviour do we expect from a king? Well, not many of the things that the Bible tells us that David does. This isn't what legends read like. Rather, it reads like the story of a flawed and sinful man, but who had faith in a great God. And that's exactly what it is. But why think about David at all? Maybe someone will say, well, yes, I believe this is true and all that, but what relevance does it have for my life? So why think about David? Why why get back into 2 Samuel? Well, firstly... Any guesses as to which Bible character is named most often after God and Jesus? Which human Bible character is named most often? Well, yes, it's David. Uh, And so if we want to get to grips with the Bible, we need to get to grips with David. It's been estimated that nearly a seventh of the Bible is about David. So if, if you've just started a Bible reading plan to read the Bible in a year you will be spending the equivalent of one day a week reading about David. Uh, And one of the goals of preaching is surely to equip people to read their Bibles better, uh, with with more, uh, deeper understanding. If you're reading through your Bible this year, you'll be reading lots about David. Another reason to think about David is because to do so will help our understanding of the New Testament the new testament literally starts with the words the book of the genealogy of jesus christ the son of david when the angel appears to mary and tells her that she's going to give birth to a baby he says the lord god will give him the throne of his father david and where does the angel tell the the shepherds that jesus has been born For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. Or we can look at the titles of the Lord Jesus. Sixteen times in the Gospels, Jesus is called the Son of David. So who is this David? And what is the significance of Jesus being described as his Son? Well, in this case, reading the the New Testament will send us back to the Old Testament. And reading the Old Testament in light of the New will help us understand the Old better. Uh, And it works both ways. The New Testament sheds light on the Old, but the Old also sheds light on the New. Uh, Perhaps never uh, more so than in in the Psalms uh, written by David and in the accounts of David's life. And as I say, any time we come to study a part of the Bible which features lots and lots about one particular character, uh, we need to get beyond looking at that character and asking what good things they do that we can imitate and what bad things they do that we must avoid. It's not wrong to ask those questions Uh, We're even told in the New Testament that the things that happen to at least some Old Testament characters happen to them as an example and were written down for our instruction. That's in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. But the problem with reading the Old Testament as a series of character studies is that it stops us uh, seeing that the Bible is first and foremost about God. That the Bible is about what God is doing through the obedience of the human characters at times, but also through and in spite of their disobedience. Dale Ralph Davis, who uh, has written great commentaries on 1st on and 2nd Samuel, he, he says that he cringes when someone comes up to him and says, Oh, I just love anything about David. He says again and again as we read Second Samuel, we have to shake ourselves and say, this is not about David. It's not even about covenant kings. It is about a covenant God who makes covenant promises to a covenant king through whom he will preserve his covenant people. Or perhaps we could say, it's not about David. It's about how David points us forward to the Lord Jesus Because if we can read about David and take lessons from his life without talking about Jesus, what what difference is there between us and a Jewish synagogue or a, a Muslim mosque? Back when we looked at the the first half of this book, I quoted the title of a commentary written by a Scottish covenanter in the 1600s. A a little known figure, a little known book. Uh, The the short title of his commentary is The Throne of David. But its longer title is one of those big titles they they liked back in the day. Uh, An exposition of the book, the second book of Samuel, wherein is set down the pattern of a pious and prudent prince and a clear type of the Prince of Princes, Christ Jesus, the Son of David, and his spiritual kingdom. So it's a bit of a a mouthful, uh, but you can see even from the title uh, how that old Covenanter minister understood the book of 2 Samuel. He understood it on one level as being an account of David's reign, but on another level he understood it as being about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh, or we could go back even further than uh, the, the Covenanters to John Calvin. He said the earthly reign of David is a token or, or a picture in which we must contemplate the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ in the salvation of His church. So Calvin says, if, if you open Second Samuel, you must contemplate the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ in the salvation of His church. Calvin says in another place in the introduction to the the Geneva Bible, uh, used by many of the Puritans, he says the noble and victorious King David, subduing under his hand every rebellious power, ultimately points us to Jesus Christ. And to apply all this to the first half of 2 Samuel, we are shown in the opening chapters what God's chosen king looks like and what his kingdom looks like. We're shown God's king and his kingdom. And what could be more important for us than learning more about the character of Jesus Christ as foreshadowed in David and being reminded what his kingdom will look like. The thing that will, above all, help us grow in the Christian life, uh, as we touched on this morning, but we'll come back to next week, is to behold the glory of Christ And we'll not do that if we only get as far as looking at Bible characters as moral examples. So we need Jesus to see him is to be transformed by the Spirit when the Spirit works. We need to see Jesus. We also need to be reminded about what Christ's kingdom looks like. Our Lord taught us to pray, your kingdom come. The kingdom of God is a huge theme in the New Testament, but many, many Christians get the kingdom of God wrong. Jesus tells us that his kingdom will start small, uh, remember his parable of the mustard seed, but then slowly and surely grow and grow and grow till till it fills the earth. But many Christians seem to think that God isn't doing anything that if God isn't doing anything spectacular, then He's not doing anything at all. They might not come out and say it, but they seem to think that most of the time the kingdom of God is treading water, and then a big revival will come and push it forward a bit, and then nothing much will happen till the next revival. If you'd asked a Jewish person at the time of Jesus what the kingdom of God coming on earth would be like they would have said it would be spectacular Uh, something like God splitting the heavens and coming down or or raining down lightning bolts something big and dramatic that that everyone would have to sit up and pay attention to and then Jesus comes and he says that the kingdom of God is among you in the midst of you and nothing much spectacular happens Uh, many people turn away because it's not what they expected the kingdom of God would be like. And we face a similar temptation to to look for the dramatic. Uh, But what we see in these early chapters of 2 Samuel is a king whose kingdom grows slowly. So the book begins, as we've said, with David learning of the death of King Saul. David himself had been anointed king by Samuel way back in 1 Samuel 16. But he had waited on God's timing, consistently refusing to take opportunities to kill Saul uh, because Saul was still the Lord's anointed. But now Saul is dead. But Saul's death isn't like the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, David doesn't automatically become king over... He doesn't automatically become king. He doesn't automatically start to rule over everywhere that Saul ruled over. In chapter 2, he is anointed king, but only over one tribe, only over Judah. It's a backwater. It doesn't look very impressive. And yet, for the first time in the history of the world, God's chosen king is reigning on earth. Saul had been the people's choice of a king. Uh, David had been God's choice. So for the first time God's chosen king is reigning on earth. Uh, in 2nd Samuel 2, the kingdom of God has become concrete, visible, earthly. Uh, the Lord's chosen king has begun to reign. Uh, David's kingdom has not yet come in the fullest sense, but we don't despise the small beginnings. And we live in a day when Jesus Christ has ascended back into heaven and and rules at the Father's right hand. Uh, We live in a day when the prophecy of Psalm 2 has been fulfilled. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And that is no small thing. Uh, From that day down to ours, his kingdom has been growing. Slowly, steadily, but it has been growing. Uh, And that's a glorious thing. And yet second, Samuel also teaches us that the kingdom of God will be opposed. And so as we read in, in chapter two verse nine, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul is set up as a rival king. And in his kingdom, there is no grace or mercy, as chapter four will make clear. When Ishbosheth, he, he's a puppet king, uh, when he's no longer considered useful, he is murdered. But to rewind it back to chapter 2, once the rival king is set up, fighting and death ensue in the rest of the chapter. Uh, And all the the fighting, all the death, it's pointless because opposing God's true king is always pointless. In fact, that's one of the, the lessons of these early chapters. God's Messiah, his anointed, is going to reign on earth and no one and nothing can stop him. The unbeliever tries to oppose God's king, but it's all so pointless. If that's you this evening, there is no point fighting against God's king. It will only end badly. Then in chapter 5, the rest of the tribes acknowledge David as king. He's anointed king over Israel as well as Judah. The one who has suffered so much, uh, particularly in the second half of 1 Samuel, is now exalted. Just like Jesus. The pattern for Jesus and the pattern of Jesus' people is first suffering, then exaltation. Remember that this week. The pattern for us, as it was for our Saviour, first suffering, then exaltation. Then in chapter 6 and 7, we see these two things that are at the centre of David's rule, worship and covenant. I preached on the first half of chapter 6, outside during COVID, under the title, Is Public Worship Dangerous? And I answered yes but not for reasons of health or safety but because our God is a consuming fire who's not to be messed with. But whether people would call themselves religious or not we're all worshippers. The only question is who will worship? And if we are to worship the one true God we must worship him as he commands But the form of worship, while it is important, it is not enough. Our worship must be heartfelt. We must give our all to it. And David does that, but, but his wife, Michal, despises him for dancing before the Lord with all his might. As someone has said, there's something wrong when we give all our enthusiasm to the world and all our coldness to God. It's a a powerful quote. It's a convicting quote. There's something wrong when we give all our enthusiasm to the world. When when what we get excited about is what's happening Monday to Saturday. And when we give all our coldness to God. Then in chapter 7 comes one of the high points of the whole Old Testament. God's covenant with David. David. The Lord promises to establish his throne forever. And this is a reign that comes to full and and final fulfilment in Jesus Christ. Those words of the angel to Mary, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. In chapter 8, we see God's Messiah defeating his enemies. Then in chapter 9, we see how gracious he is when he invites Mephibosheth to come and eat at his table. But then in chapter 11 comes the event which will end one man's life and cast a shadow over the rest of David's. In the incident with Bathsheba, David acts not like God's Messiah, not like God's anointed, but like Adam back in the Garden of Eden. David, like Adam, had been given so much, but just like Adam, he takes the one thing he's not allowed. Uh, We read that, that... that Eve saw the fruit and took it and we read that David saw Bathsheba and took her. It's telling us that the great need of the human race is someone who will be a son of David but not a son of Adam. How could that be? Someone who instead of sacrificing others to save himself as David sacrifices, sacrifices Uzziah will instead sacrifice himself to save others. And of course that's where the New Testament takes up this story. Uh, the one who is born who is a son of David, but not a son of Adam. And the one who does sacrifice himself to save others. But in the meantime, David's fall has consequences. First he must repent and find forgiveness. How can he be forgiven for such a heinous crime? Well, in order for David to be forgiven, someone had to die. Not the son born to Bathsheba, though he died too, but another son of David, Jesus Christ. Jesus uh, had to come and die in order that David could be forgiven for his sins and in order that we could be forgiven for our sins. And as a result, although David's sins will have consequences on him and his family, it's important to remember that in the rest of this book, David isn't being punished for his sins. Uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon once rather strikingly started a sermon by saying that God's people can never, by any possibility, be punished for their sins. I'll say that again. God's people can never, by any possibility, be punished For their sins, that's true in this life as well as the next. Why? Because Jesus has taken the punishment we deserve, and God will not punish the same sin twice. Yes, God still chastises and disciplines us as His people, but there's a big difference between chastisement and discipline on the one hand, and punishment on the other. It's the difference between God acting as judge and God acting as father. A sentence of punishment is pronounced by a judge but chastisement or discipline is enacted by a father. So the Christian, you this evening, uh, brothers and sisters are in a totally different relationship to God from the non-Christian because as a Christian you've been adopted into God's family. As a son, David will be disciplined for wrongdoing, but that's very different from a sentence handed out by a judge. God punishes his enemies, but he doesn't punish his children. He only ever disciplines them. They—they they are different things with different aims. And as we get back into this book next week, God willing, we'll be seeing what some of that chastisement looks like for David. And yet he remains the rightful king. And so we'll also be be seeing in the rest of this book, attempts by David's son Absalom to remove his father from the throne. Just as David points us forward to Jesus, so Absalom points us forward to Judas. Words that David writes about his own betrayal become prophecies of Jesus' betrayal. So that's where we're going, God willing. Uh, and over, overall in these 12 chapters, I trust we'll see picture after picture of the Prince of Princes, Jesus Christ, the Son of David, and his spiritual kingdom. Amen. Well, let's now sing about our our reigning king from Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2, singing of our reigning king and how futile it is to fight against him. Uh, Psalm 2, we'll sing the first four verses. Verses 1 and 2, we see uh, the kings of the earth taking their stand against God's Messiah, his Christ, uh, foreshadowed in the life of David. Uh, v- verse 2 second half of the verse kings of earth do take their stand rulers are in league combined uh, against v- verse 2 messiah's sway uh, but it's all pointless how does god react when his king is opposed verse 3 he, he laughs he derides them why uh, because verse 4 he is the one who has set his king to reign and he will maintain his rule